here. Let's go ahead and review these. This one's. I was uh, I was writing a test today. This one was sort of an afterthought, so it might be a little easier tonight. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Since the New Testament word for Lord, kurios, can refer either to Yahweh or the lesser idea of a master, there's no way to unequivocally identify the New Testament Jesus with Yahweh. And why is that? Because they use Old Testament passages that refer to Yahweh. Yes, right. So they quote Old Testament references to Yahweh. Correct. Number two, while God is immutable, the second person of the Godhead is not because he was transformed into a human. False. And why is that false? For one, he wasn't transformed into a human. Okay. And he still retains his attributes of God. Right. And so, so what? It, what? What does happen instead of a transformation? He took on human body yes. flesh. So he adds immunity to himself without any change to his divine person. Which of the following is or are true? I guess this depends on what the answer is. C and D. Okay. And, of course, the man Christ Jesus is never omnipresent. Uh, it's the, the second person of the Godhead. But the second person of the Godhead was omnipresent. Even though Christ, as a human, is localized, he remains omnipresent at all times. Number four, Jesus would probably have gotten a perfect score in his SAT test had he lived today. That's not true. What's that? That's false, because mentioned that he had to learn just like we do. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined there. He had to learn the same way we do, and it's not as though that he had some sort of perfect, you know, photographic memory and perfect recall. Uh, so he probably would not have gotten a perfect score in his Yeah, but then on the other hand, he would have... Uh, he would have applied himself, but remember, the whole thing with an SAT is not just... Some people, no matter how hard they apply themselves, most people, no matter how hard they apply themselves, won't get a hundred on the S. Well, uh, I was thinking false because it was probably not in Aramaic, <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't. He wouldn't have been able to. No, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. There again, there doesn't seem to be any. He's not. He's not a superhuman. He was an ordinary human, learned the same way the rest of us do, and in terms of his. Memory recall and his and his studies, he, he would have forgotten just as the rest of us do. Uh, probably he would have could done perhaps better than his friends because he applied certainly applied himself. He was an industrious fellow, worked worked hard, I'm sure. So he probably would have done a little bit better than the average. But uh, I don't think he was natively endowed with anything more with than average human mind. So if you replace that with Adam in his non-fallen state. Adam would probably have gotten a perfect score. Because at that point his body was I mean it yes. was in a free because his humanity un- fallen state. Yes, his humanity was as as good as it gets without being perfect. But he would have still had to learn. He still would have had to learn. He still would have had to study, but he probably would have had Outstanding recall skills, and he would have been he would have been smarter than anybody else. Uh, so Except for the serpent, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess there's no guarantee he'd gotten the perfect <laughs> score, but he would have. I, I would, I would, I would. Yeah, that's a good 
It's a good thought. Look, who would have gotten a better score, Adam or Jesus, on his SAT? <laughs> and I, I guess my, my answer would, all things being equal, probably Adam. Which is an interesting thought. I hadn't yeah. put it in those terms before, but yeah. Good thoughts. So, um, when the Spirit came on Mary and she became pregnant, was so God created DNA, the, the male part of the yeah. chromosomes. That Y chromosome must have been the product of creation. Mary couldn't have given it to him, so. Right. Okay. Well, good thoughts. Okay, let's uh, pick up then in our notes and remind me of where we were. We were on 32, is that right? Divine yep. work? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so again, we're establishing here the divinity or deity of Christ. Walk through his attributes. And then uh, we are here with his divine works, the fact that he does things that only God does is further evidence of his deity. He's a creator. Through him all things were made, and with him nothing was made that has been made. The world was made through him. Well, Genesis 1.1 says God created everything, heavens and the earth, probably a merism, Hebrew merism, for well, the, the immaterial realm, the material realm, and everything in them. Uh, and yet here it is attributed to Christ. First Corinthians 8, 6, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. So he's there at the beginning. Interestingly, it looks as though he was in some sort of subordination to God the Father at creation, if, if that verse holds, if I, if I understand it correctly. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created in heaven and earth. Hebrews 1.13, to the Son, God says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Well, obviously then that makes him God. The preservation of the universe, by him all things hold together. He upholds all things by the word of his power. By him all things consist, again, that... That baking term, you know, how, you know all the the uh, the batter is springy. It all holds together. It's just isn't running. Providence. Here's an interesting one that says it's a it's a I think a metaphorical reference. Actually, technically a metonymy, but a a, a figure that says that Christ, that Christ was with. Israel in the wilderness. Remember, there was the water from the rock, and that rock was Christ, is the statement that's made there in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and some have some have run with that and and have argued that there this rock. Remember, Moses was supposed to speak to it one time and strike it one time. He struck it both times, gets in trouble for it because he apparently struck it in anger. And so he gets in trouble for striking the rock the second time. But nonetheless, uh, there's this idea of a rock that from which flowed 
water. And some of your, some particularly of the Reformed persuasion, will look at that and say, "Aha! There's Jesus in the Old Testament. He was, he was typologically inside that rock somehow." Um, and even some would will suggest that this rock actually rolled along with the, you know, this rock just sort of pumped along in the wilderness, and it was sort of a. Uh, a ready tap for for Moses anytime he wanted to, he could get water out of it. I'm not sure that that's really the what what's what's there, uh, but uh, but uh, the idea is that Christ is the rock in a metonymous sense. Uh, he was the efficient source of provision that stood behind the instrumental source. In fact, let me maybe I can give you a uh, uh, an example that's more modern. The water extinguished the fire. We could say that, but we could also say that the fireman extinguished the fire. Neither one would be incorrect. The fireman is the one who used the water to put out the fire, uh, and neither one is a lie per se. Uh, but technically, the fireman didn't put the fire. Out. The water put the fire out, but we can still say the fireman put the fire out. Uh, same way here. The rock produced the water, and Christ was the efficient source behind that instrumental source. Christ provided the water through the rock. He wasn't the rock in a, in a literal sense, or even a typological sense. So he's the he functions here as the historical executor, of divine providence. So here he is, uh, involved in the providence whereby Israel was was shepherded from Egypt to the promised land. And that's what he's always done. Uh, he's also here described as a destroying angel. Probably a reference here to a, a reference to... Uh, Numbers 1641, where the destroying angel comes in judgment after one of uh, Israel's many moral failures. Um, And this destroying angel is described here as Christ as well. So we've already just said here that the angel of Yahweh was probably Jesus. Well, here we've got this destroying angel who's identified in 1 Corinthians as Jesus as well. So again, it may point to Christ's Old Testament role as angel of Yahweh. It's also implied in verses 14 to 22 that Christ played a direct role in the providential outworking of Israel's history. So uh, Christ has has been a part of the providential outworking of the programmatic uh, plan of God, uh, not just starting with the church, but extending back in history to Israel. In the Future, well, excuse me, in the church age, as described in the first two, three chapters of Revelation, remember there's, there is, there's Christ walking between the lampstands, and these lampstands are, are defined then as the, the pastors of these seven representative churches, these seven historical representative churches that are, each one is given a message, and uh, perhaps a little bit cryptic here, but Jesus is walking among them. So uh, uh, just as he oversaw Israel in the Old Testament, he's overseeing 
the work of the church in the New Testament, uh, overseeing them, and as necessary, carrying out judgment against them. We recognize that some of these churches, just about all of them, uh, have some some problems that require uh, correction. In the last day, of course, we find uh, the Lamb of God, uh, one like unto the Lamb of God, and, and various representations here, clearly Jesus. And he's unleashing uh, the judgments of the end times, and uh, we could multiply these out. I just put four of them, but we could keep them coming. And then Hebrews 1 gives us something of a summary statement here. By Christ, God made the ages which is more than saying that God created the substance here of the world. The term ages includes in its scope the governmental structures by which he maintains continuous control over history and of the relationships within it. And so Christ is is, uh, intimately involved here in the providential outworking of history in the dispensational program. He also assumes to himself authority over these divinely instituted religious structures, which is rather brazen of him if he's not God. Yeah. Matthew 12, someone greater than the temple is here. Me. (laughs) Well, that's pretty bold. Uh, Not if you're God, but uh, uh, otherwise it is. He says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who's the arbiter of what the Ten Commandments mean at any one time. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. uh, He says multiple times that he has authority over the law of Moses in that throughout Matthew 5 and 6, he he makes the statement, Moses said X, but I say unto you. Moses said this, but I say unto you. And so... He's authoritatively commenting on the law of Moses, and and I, I don't want to say he's expanding what Moses said. I think it's sort of implied. Uh, at least you know it's not as though it was okay to hate people in the Old Testament as long as you didn't murder anybody. It, there's the implication was there, but he takes the implication and codifies it, which is a which is a significant step. Okay. Not just anybody can authoritatively say, this is what the law says, but this is what it also means. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, if a pastor is going to try and talk about the implications of the, of the laws and the statements of Scripture, you usually say it in a little bit softer terms. I think there's an implication here for all of us, right? Uh, rather than saying, this is what it means. Uh, now there, there have been those who have abused that, but uh, God's not Christ is not abusing that here. And He's called the Lord of the Church. He's the one who holds the keys to the to the kingdom. Uh, he is uh, uh, he is the he gives to Peter the power to bind and loose participants in the church, and that's it's very bold. Uh, so so not only does Peter get extraordinary authority. The fact that Jesus gave him that authority means that it was his to give. Okay, so he's assuming divine prerogatives here. Number five, he boldly forgives people's sins and imparts life to people. 
After forgiving the paralytic man's sin, Jesus has an exchange with the scribes and agrees with them that indeed God alone can forgive sin. Remember they said, hey, 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 you can't say that. Don't say your sins are forgiven you. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus says, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and apparently he's, he's quoting from the Old Testament here. Isaiah 43, 25 says this. I, yes, I alone can blot out your sins for my own name's sake. So if you want to throw that in the margin there. So uh, I alone forgive sin. God alone forgives sin. That's right. And Christ is God. That's why he can't. John 5, we've looked at this a couple of times already in this, these notes. Just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so also the Son gives life to anyone he wants. The time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself. He has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. Okay, so... Again, it's a very important verse in Christology, not under the heading of Aseity, like we said earlier, but it's still important. God doesn't give Jesus his being, but he gives him authority greater than he gives anybody else. No, no mere human has these kinds of, that's this kind of authority. He's authority to judge the world, same context, in addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He has given him authority to judge everyone because he is a Son of Man. Okay? Acts 10. Because Christ was raised from the dead to the satisfaction of God, God has appointed him to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so judgment of the world accrues to Jesus Christ. He performs miracles. Now, miracles alone don't don't prove that he is the Messiah. There are those who have done miracles other than the Messiah. But miracles, when you see them in the scriptures, almost always are there to corroborate either the messenger or his message or some combination of both. So uh, the, the, the prophets uh, were uh, performed miracles. The apostles who were bringing new revelation to the church were, were, were uh, empowered with miracles to demonstrate that God has his imprimatur on these, these apostles, these prophets. And Jesus has God's imprimatur upon him, not as a prophet, uh, or as a or as an apostle, but as the Messiah in this case. Okay, so Christ's performance of miracles constitutes a sign package, if I could put it that way, that he was the promised seed. And concluding otherwise was the unforgivable sin, right? Matthew twelve thirty two. Well, the question is, how, how, why, why do you think I'm doing these miracles? How do you think I'm doing these miracles? He asks the uh, leaders of the Jews there, and what's their reply? Yeah, you must be doing these things in the power of Beelzebub. And he replies, first by saying, that's that's about the most illogical thing you could possibly say. That's that's his his first statement. Why would Satan bind himself? That doesn't even make any sense. Why would why would Satan, in the power of Satan, do things that hurt Satan? 
That doesn't even make sense. Okay, so uh, that can't be right. But then he could, then he but then he sort of lowers the boom. Uh, you know, you, there's there's a lot of things you can do that'll be forgiven. But one thing that won't be forgiven: blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This blaspheming against the Holy Spirit here is described as 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 the Holy Spirit's corroboration of Christ's identity through miracles. If you reject that, if you reject, uh, and, and, and I think the, the, the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a very narrow, narrow one. I don't think we can, we can commit that sin today because we don't have that Holy, the, the Holy Spirit performing messianic type miracles in corroboration of Jesus. We did, perhaps we could say that, but I, I don't, I don't see that going on. But in that day, um, there was there was a possibility of seeing the Messiah, having the Messiah prove that he is the Messiah, and if in fact you walk away from that, there's no hope of repentance. In fact, you know, just thinking about it, look at look at Hebrews chapter four, excuse me, six. Hebrews chapter six is this. Uh, Statement here that's it's that's it's a little it's it's very difficult to interpret this these three verses in the book of of Hebrews six. It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Powers of the coming age. These are that word powers generally implies miracles. Miracles of the coming age. If they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because of their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. I think I tie that in with this, this statement here back in Matthew 12, right? Okay, These are the only two occasions where you find the unpardonable sin mentioned. And they're in the same context. Who, who, what's the book of Hebrews written to? Israel. Hebrews, Jewish people. And if you look at the context, are there there are those who have followed Christ but now they're having second thoughts okay and apparently they they've tentatively followed Christ but then when things get a little bit rough they're saying eh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I want to follow through on this and what's what does the author of Hebrews say if you saw if you tasted the power t- tasted the power of the holy spirit and saw the miracles the the signs of the age to come and then you walk away no forgiveness so i i tie those two verses together so there's the unpardonable sin um, and that, and the unpardonable sin is is seeing the miraculous corroboration of the messiahship of Jesus Christ and 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 rejecting it. So Jesus performed miracles to demonstrate who he was. And we see this in Matthew 14 after Jesus walked in the water, calmed the sea, his disciples concluded, "Truly, you are the son of God. I know this because you walked on the water." That, that, that didn't happen. On page 34, number 7. Oh, did you get your New notes, incidentally. Good. Okay. John one forty nine. After Jesus read Nathaniel's mind, remember, <clears throat> while you were under the fig tree, I, I knew you were there. 
And Nathaniel responds to this, how did you know that? Well, Rabbi, you must be the son of God. You're the king of Israel, because that's the only kind of person who could do that. So so these, these miracles that Jesus did does is proof of his divinity. He also answers prayer. If I... If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, that's a again, that's a rather arrogant claim. If you're not God, but if you're God, that's that's a routine thing to say. Stephen prayed, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit," which is a a, a, a final prayer of trust here that he has just before he dies at the at the hands of Saul and his henchmen there. 2 Corinthians 12, in answer to Paul's prayer, Christ, it's specific, the, the, the specificity is there. Christ responds, my grace is sufficient for you. You have one of those red letter editions of the Bible. It's, it's red in the middle of Corinthians. It seems like the wrong place. Well, that's because it's the words of Christ. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is reflected, perfected through your weakness. And Paul replies this, then I'm going to boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. So there is Christ answering Paul's prayer. And then finally, the final dissolution of the world and creation of the new world order is given to Christ as well. God also says to the Son, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed, and then after that happens, he will make all things new. So, Jesus is, is clearly, clearly by, by virtue of what he does, God. So not only does he have the names, but also uh, the actions of God. One last bit here before we conclude this section here, and that's uh, the fact that divine worship is accorded to Christ as well. We all know that uh, worship belongs to God alone. No creature is ever allowed to accept worship whether angels or people. We've got two examples here of those, right? Remember John uh, is up in heaven, and I don't know whether it's an act of confusion or, or something. He he bows down to an angel, and the angel says, no, 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 you worship God alone. You, you don't bow down to me. And then, of course, Acts 10 is, is that rather humorous, actually kind of ghastly, but in a humorous kind of way, uh, that... Uh, Herod accrues to himself, he's a god, he is a god, and he, he drinks it all in, and then he was eaten of worms and died, uh, which is, again, sort of sort of humorous in a ghastly sort of way. Um, and and then, of course, in Acts 14, when, when Paul and Barnabas were confused with the gods in, in Ephesus, they say, no, we are not, no. We are not gods. Don't worship us. That's it's, That would be an ill-founded thing. Christ himself specified that no one was to receive worship save God alone. And yet he receives worship. Matthew 14, his disciples worshipped him after he calmed the storm. The Syrophoenician woman bowed down to him. The disciples worshipped him after the resurrection. The man born blind worshipped Jesus after he was healed. And not a problem. Jesus doesn't rebuke any of these people, like the angel rebuked John. In fact, Christ demands worship. Just further to, not only does he receive it and accept it, he demands it. All men must honor the Son even as they honor the Father. This is the, this is the way it's got to be. You've got to worship me alongside the Father. 
He asserts himself to be the object of saving faith. Come unto me. I'll give you rest. You believe in God? Believe in me. Because I'm God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Who believe, whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. John 3.16 here as well, right? More famous verse. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Angels worship Christ. Let all the angels of God worship him. Four living creatures worship the Lamb in Revelation. And then the culmination of ordinary history is is a is is you find everything align and everything worships God Christ the way they ought. At the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, we looked at that earlier, this, this verse earlier. This is a, a, a citation of an Old Testament text here, so the, the, that he is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. So all of this, you know, we've spent a little time on this because, again, this is so fundamental to, to Christianity that Jesus is God walk through uh, a whole whole list of things. He takes the names of God. He has the attributes of God. He does the works of God. He receives worship just like God. And the conclusion here, and I want to cite C.S. Lewis, and I think it's just a very very helpful statement, a very very confirming statement about uh, the, con- the conclusion we need to draw from all this. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes talking as if he were God claims to forgive sin. He always he says he always has existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let us get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians, from India, uh, anyone might say that he was part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about this. But this man, since he was a Jew could not mean that kind of a God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who made it, who is infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who has merely, uh, who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either the man, this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. I think he makes a very good conclusion with to the uh, material we've just looked at. Any thoughts on that, on the deity of Christ? Okay, let's turn the corner then to the humanity of Christ. So this is the new set of notes you have, I think, right? So if, if, uh, 
you have everything now. So you guys should have everything up to page 81. If you've got that, you've got everything. I start out by saying that because the Western mind is more inclined towards the error that sees Christ as a human but not divine, rather than the reverse, Western theologies tend to focus more on the deity of Christ than on his humanity. But this is not a universal thing. This is sort of a Western post-enlightenment kind of of thing. Uh, Prior to that, the the defense of Christ's humanity was just as robust as the the defense of his deity. And And I've really want to make sure we, we look at that because that's uh, that's uh, I think that's important for us. Now, I've, I've actually put a chart here, and maybe it's in the wrong place. Uh, maybe I should have put it later or earlier, but I'm, 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 I'm finding I'm starting to have to use some of these terms, and so I decided to throw this in now uh, just so we uh, have a sense of, of what there is. And you can see that I've got a series of Christological heresies that have popped up in the history of the Christian church. Um, I've got six of them listed. Some of them you can see are shaded and the others are white because we, we tend to have a, a sort of a, 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 a teeter-tottering between two ditches in, in church history. There are those like Ebionism, Arianism, and Nestorianism which denied Christ's deity or his full deity. Um, and, and so I have those down in, in the white. But then on the other side, you've got those who denied his humanity or his full humanity, which are reflected here in Docetism and Apollinarianism. We already mentioned Apollinarianism, right? Remember that? The denial of the full humanity of Christ. Do you remember where we talked about that? That was in our discussion of the uh, the precious blood of Christ. It's it's not precious because it's divine blood. Uh, and we said if if that were the case, then we would be partaking of the error of Apollinarianism. We're saying that he's human in many ways, but his blood that's God's blood, and that's what makes it so valuable. It's God's blood, but the rest of him is just ordinary human. Well, that would be. Uh, an, an instance here of Apollinarianism here. So Docetism and Apollinarianism are what we're after now. Uh, these are those who would say that Christ wasn't human or wasn't fully human. Either he appeared to be human, uh, took on appearances, but you know, you know, if you actually came up to him and poked him, you'd, your hand would go through like one of those Star Trek type things, you know. Uh, uh, and and then Apollinarianism that he's not completely human. There's there's some uh, divine features about him that aren't that aren't given up, and so those are the two errors that we're trying to address here uh, by defending the humanity of Christ. So I say, unlike the historical errors of Docetism, Apollinarianism, and Eutychianism, the great ones, Scripture portrays Jesus as truly and fully human with no admixture of human with the divine we are never more nor less we are we are neither more nor less human than he nor could we be if his atoning death is to have any value for us he is human just as we are 
but without sin. Okay? And Christ's humanity is just as important to his salvation as his deity. He has to be one of us. Remember, in, in Hebrews 2, he didn't die for the angels. Uh, his, his, atoning, his atoning death does nothing for them because he didn't become one of those. His atoning death is valuable for us because he came, became one of us. And if he didn't come become one of us, or didn't be fully become one of us, then his atoning work is of, of little value to us. Okay? So he's called a man. John 8, you are determined to kill me, a man. John 19, Pilate says to them, here's that famous statement, behold the man. Uh, NIV has here is the man, probably a little bit, I, I think probably we get a, a little bit of the wrong picture when with the behold the man. So you almost get this idea, behold the man. And the, the, uh, the sentiment was probably, Okay, I've just I've whipped this guy within an inch of his life. He's all beaten up and bloody and staggering out. There's your man. You, you want me to kill him? Him? This man? This 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 poor specimen of a man is probably what he's saying. Uh, and uh, that's so he's not only a man, but a rather ordinary and perhaps even subordinary man at this point. In, his, in, in, in history. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. Romans 5, 12, and 15 is a very important set of verses that uh, are, you know, upon which a lot of our discussion of the doctrine of sin hinges, but we recognize that there, there's, a, there's two parts to this. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, He's appointed to be the representative human. And death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because of the trespass of the one man. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And that, that's the whole argument here. Why is it that Christ's uh, death is valuable for us? Because he was appointed to be the second representative man, the second representative human for our race, and we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And the only way he can stand as the representative man is for him to actually be one. And so he has to be a human. Same kind of argument here is in 1 Corinthians 15. Since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead must also come through a man. So the representative man, Adam, died, and we all died with him. The representative man, Jesus, rose from the dead, and we rise with him. First Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and men, humans. The human, Jesus Christ. So he's called a man. He's called a son of man. Now remember we, we, we remember we mentioned this in John 5:27 the father has given to him the authority to judge because he is a son of man and we talked about you know how C.S. Lewis uh, in his Chronicles of Narnia refers to humans as sons and daughters of Adam okay it's probably the same sense here because he is a man because he is a son of man he is given authority to judge now, this can be a little bit confusing to us. 
uh, because uh, um, there are there are places in Scripture, particularly in Matthew, uh, in in citing the book of Daniel, where Jesus is called the Son of Man, and it seems like a title uh, of his messiahship. So it's pointing not so much to his humanity as to his his powerful messiahship. So he's the son of man. Uh, but this is a little bit different. It's 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 a son of man. It's more of a, 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 a he's he's one of a species. You know, he is a son of man, uh, and that's to be distinguished from this this other statement, which is more of a title for for the Messiah, the Son of Man, the the quintessential man, the quintessential uh, Messiah figure here. Okay, so he's so he's called a man. He's called a son of man. He possesses attributes of humanity. And uh, this is, I'm borrowing here, especially from Warfield, the human development of Jesus. Uh, Warfield has a, just a, a real, for, for writing a hundred years ago, he he really has a an easygoing approach that, 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 that's very easy to read. So well worth reading this. He was born, Mary got pregnant, gave birth, wrapped him in cloths, put him in a manger. There's nothing miraculous about Jesus' birth, per se. There is something miraculous about his conception, okay, his virgin conception. That was a miracle. But the birth itself was an ordinary birth. He was constitutionally flesh and blood. He became flesh. He was the seed of David according to the flesh. He partook of flesh and blood. He is Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Okay, and again, this observation that his blood was human blood no properties any different than that of any other man it's precious yes but not intrinsically precious not a, there's no indication here there was something constitutionally different about the blood of Jesus certainly the idea that it is collected in a heavenly font and dispensed as a in a, as a physical form of grace is to be rejected again was here I, I mentioned that uh, Passion of Jesus Christ that movie that that yeah that came out what three or four years ago um, and if you watched closely when he's when he's on the cross bleeding uh, Mary's there collecting blood yeah, it's, it, it it comes rather quickly but it, you know the scene passes rather rapidly here but but she's there collecting the blood because the blood is act none of the blood of Jesus is lost it's swept up into heaven whereby where where and and from there it is dispensed uh, it, it's dispensed whenever the Eucharist is is distributed uh, how how does it how does that wine magically become uh, Blood with that hawkest corpus by the uh, by the uh, by the priest. Well, there's a font filled with the blood of Christ in heaven. That's actually the the, the source of this. So the, so this ex opere operata. You know this this idea that uh, these things actually accomplish what they're supposed what they do even without the faith of the hearer. So you take the communion. It actually it's actually a source of grace for you even if you're not believing uh, because it's Jesus blood 
and there's 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 just you know a, a native grace there. You can't avoid it. You get grace whether you whether you uh, want to or not. Okay. So why is Christ's blood precious? Well, the shedding of blood is taken as idiomatic for the atoning death of Christ, which is exceeding precious for those for whom he died. The efficacy of the atonement is not due to unique properties in its blood, but the unique person who died in substitution for the death of hell-deserving sinners. That's what's precious. The violent death of Christ on our behalf. That's what's precious to us. Not the blood, not technically the blood itself. There's nothing intrinsically or constitutionally different or more valuable about the blood that dripped on the ground there, and the blood that you know drips when you cut yourself at work—you know—it's just blood. It's what it did that is precious. Christ also grew and developed physically and intellectually. He grew and became strong. He increased in stature, so physically he grew, and mentally, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and men. And note the context of this. He was listening to and asking questions of the religious experts in Jerusalem. And as he's, it's not as though he's just telling them, "You've got it all wrong." I, I, listen to me. I've, I've got, I've got the goods here. Listen up. No, he's having a conversation, and it's in those conversations that he's increasing in knowledge. He's increasing in wisdom. So those conversations were, were not. Uh, who knows? Maybe, now, maybe he was sort of informing them here and there of things, but he's also learning. Uh, it's it's not a one way street. There, uh, he's learning things from these teachers of the law because he has to learn the same way uh, the rest of us do. Now, Christ doesn't develop as God. However, in his humanity, Jesus experienced normal growth in every area, even in the moral realm we can see progress. Not from moral deficiency to moral virtue, of course, but from simple to complex ethical awareness and the successful implementation of his ethical suasions. You know, when, when uh, you know, it starts out with, you know, he reaches the for something he shouldn't and marrying him. No, no, Jesus, you shouldn't do that. And now he always learns his lesson the very first time. Mary didn't have to do it twice. Uh, but 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 he had to learn. He had to. He had to. Okay, you know, I'll put that into my grid. That's, it's wrong for me to do this, so I won't do it anymore. And so he develops from those simple kinds of things that babies and toddlers do, and to the much more complex uh, moral uh, situations he found himself in later in life. And this is something here that uh, Augustus Hopkins Strong says is a little poem here which is, I find very arresting, I thought I'd throw it in here, just because of the arresting nature of the poem, was not our Lord a little child taught by degrees to pray, by father dear and mother mild instructed day by day. That's true. He had to learn how to pray. How do do I pray? Well, Mary tells him. Joseph. they, They teach him just as we teach our children how to pray. And uh, Hebrews 5 sort of sums this up. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through suffering. Okay, so he learned 
Yeah, it's again. This is this is this is hard for us sometimes to 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 get. But but again, we don't want to think of him as having any sort of advantage over the rest of the kids in in this sense. It's not as though again, he's not as though as he didn't weren't here for it. But the, the quiz would. Uh, did Jesus, would Jesus have gotten a perfect score on his SAT? Um, and the answer was no, false. He wouldn't have because he didn't have any advantages over the rest of his over the rest of his friends, over the rest of the kids in his class. Um, he he didn't have any advantages in that sense. He had to learn the same way as everybody, and because he has a human mind, he he would have forgotten things too. Yeah, but if he in today's age, stick something in the light, in the outlet, and his parents say, "Don't ever do that again." He would. He never would because then it become it's not a sin to stick that thing in the outlet. Right. It's the, right. It's a disobedience. Right. Yeah. It's, if he does it the second time, then it's disobedience. But he would have lived to tell about it if he did it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well. They had weaker current back in those days. <laughs> sort of like the wine was really just water. <laughs> okay, now here's a, here's one that gets a little bit uh, complex for us. He also had a full range of human psychological features. That's I wasn't sure, wasn't sure exactly what to call them, so I just called that. I made that sort of a title for him. But he has psychological features, just like humans do. And, and in this discussion, I'm going to use an older and more nuanced idea here of appetites, passions, and affections. It's an interesting couple of books here. They're, they're, they're both dissertations. One by Thomas Dixon, one by Ryan Martin, who's a good friend of mine. Uh, who who have who have done some research in psychology and have discovered that the the category of emotions that we use today is actually a rather modern uh, catch-all category that prior to the well basically prior to Freud uh, there wasn't really much discussion of emotions per se but rather these more narrow narrow categories of appetites, passions, and affections. Um, and let me describe these here. By appetites are, are meant those psychosomatic impulses directed towards the satiation of finite humanity's needs and desires. Hunger, thirst, the need to reproduce. So we have these drives that are within us that are, that are and sometimes they're, they're even called Animal animal appetites, because not only do humans have these kinds of appetites, but animal, and any living form does. There's these these they're driven by these the need to get these things: food, drink, and to reproduce. Okay, so that's appetites. Passions are those impulses, and I'm using a category here that doesn't have any biblical precedent, but I think it works here. Hear me out. The impulses of the lower soul of non-omniscient beings in response to stimuli for which they're unprepared. Okay, so the, the idea here is, you know, if you're, 
if you're driving along and someone cuts you off, you're surprised, and so there's an external stimulus upon you that wasn't there before because you're not omniscient, you didn't see it coming, and so there's something glandular that rises up. You get ticked. You're walking through the woods, and and uh, and and what was that fellow was attacked by a by a mountain lion? Remember that here just a few weeks ago. A mountain kitty. Yeah, except it was a wasn't a club. But still, you know, if you if, if one of those things jumps out of the woods at you and, and grabs a hold of your your face, <laughs> even if it's only a 20, 20 pound kitty, yeah, something happens inside of you, right? You know, uh, the adrenaline all of a sudden just you know just flows freely and then you and you and you just react and respond and and you, you you strangle the cat there just because i mean that's that's just the way that's just the way it, and you know, so these are passions these are responses to external stimuli that we get because we're not omniscient we don't see these things coming and so uh, dr McCune used to call these glandular responses I think it's a reasonable way of putting it here. They're 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 these 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 chemical responses and reactions that we have. And then affections are the highest form here. Those cultured inclinations, and when I say cultured, I mean we develop them. We cult, we we actively develop these inclinations and aversions. It should be an A. Aversions of the upper soul and will of personal beings to abstract concepts such as God, beauty, goodness, truth, and also their opposites. So we, uh, we, 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 we cultivate our affection of God. We, we cultivate our affection of true beauty. We, we cultivate an aversion to evil, which is not native to us, but we cultivate it anyway. And these are, these are, uh, and this is the highest form. This is something obviously only humans have these affections. And so the reason I'm using that is because I think if we just use emotions as sort of a catch-all category, it doesn't work really well. And uh, I, I probably, I, I just read I just read Ryan Martin's dissertation here recently. I'm, I think I'm going to come back and, and revise my notes in, in Doctrine of God here, because I think it's a really helpful thing to do. Uh, if we would ask, is, is, does God have emotions? Well, what's, a, what's an emotion? Is it, is it an appetite, a passion, or an affection? Well, usually ap, uh, emotions are sort of a catch-all category that include all of those things. But I think it's really helpful to, to parse that out. Does God have appetites? No. Because he's not a finite human. Does he have passions? No. Because he's omniscient is never surprised. Does he have affections? Yes. Okay, he has he has inclinations towards what is good and aversions towards that which is evil. So, uh, so if we were to ask and ask the question, is God impassable? Remember, we asked that question last semester. Uh, I think this is perhaps helpful for understanding that God has affections, but He does not have passions or appetites. The question we're asking now here, having laid out that foundation, is what about Jesus? Does Jesus have appetites, passions, and affections? So let's look through them one by one using our definition here. Firstly, does he have human appetites? The answer, yes. Okay, so unlike pure God, 
who does not have appetites because he has no needs, he has no intrinsic uh, you know, need for food or water or to reproduce, these, these, these appetites do not exist in God, but in his humanity, these are requisite pieces of what humanity necessarily has. So after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> well, that's sort of a duh statement, but, it, but, it, but it's rather informative to us. He has appetites. He says on the cross, I'm thirsty. I say here, appetites are not evil of themselves. <clears throat> They're basic to human survival. You've got to eat. You've got to drink. And if the human race is going to survive, you've got to reproduce. Adam and Eve had appetites prior to the fall, and this is what Satan used as his his his, his entree for temptation, right? Remember, Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature. But what does he say? This is good for food. It's beautiful. It's desirable to the eyes. And it also is going to make you smarter. Well, every human wants something to eat likes beautiful things and wants to get smarter. These are native effect, uh, appetites that we that we all have and that there's nothing wrong with those things so long as we're looking for them in the right place, right? Okay? Uh, there's nothing wrong with those. Now, unlike our parents, Adam and Eve, Christ perfectly controlled his appetites even in the face of extreme want. He had fasted for 40 days. But he still had the appetites. So, and I think that it's, it's not to be unnoticed that it was after he had fasted 40 days that he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. So his temptation was much more severe than that of Adam's. You know, here, Adam, here's an apple. It's good for food. Well, Adam had breakfast that morning and he was surrounded by all the food he could possibly want to eat. And he falls for it, you know. <laughs> this this food is good. For, oh, okay. <laughs> Duh. Uh, and, and disobeys God. Jesus has been forty days without eating, and Satan is very clever. Hey, this is. Why don't you turn these rocks into bread and you can eat them? Why don't you use your miraculous power that God has? God gives to you in order to carry out your messianic mission. Why don't you just do something on the side here? Get a little bread. I mean, food's good, right? You, you eat some food. And Jesus, no, 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 no. That's not why I have these powers to 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 uh, to, to do miracles and such and turn water into wine, for instance, or or five loaves and two fishes and enough to feed five thousand people. That's not why I have these powers to just to feed myself. No, I'm not going to do it. Okay, so he he passes a test much more severe than Adam had 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 to face because he had appetites and these appetites were strained beyond belief because he hadn't eaten forty days. Okay, so he has this. Thoughts on this? Next question here is is perhaps one that's a little bit, uh, I don't know, unusual. Did Jesus have sexual appetites? And might he have married? 
Now, there's no reason to believe that Jesus, as a man, lacked any of the appetites common to men. Remember, he doesn't have any advantage over the rest of us. It's not as though he was somehow natively a eunuch or something. He has all of the appetites common to man. Based on historical evidence, we should assume that at all points, Christ had control over his own will and made up his mind not to marry. I'm, I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians 7, 37, these instructions that Paul gives to, uh, to, to uh, uh, men and women who find themselves single in the church. And he says, well, if you make up your mind and you have control over your own will and make up your mind not to marry, then you don't need to marry. But if you have trouble controlling your appetites, then you better get married. That's that's Paul's advice here. So I'm using this passage here to say that Christ apparently had control over his own will and made up his mind not to marry because there's no evidence at all uh, that he ever married. Um, nonetheless, he still has the appetites. Okay. Now the question whether he might have married is a little bit more speculative. We're very confident that he didn't marry, and marriage would have significantly complicated his mission. You know, he would have gotten married, dies on the cross, and leaves. That would be a rather difficult thing for his wife to handle, I suppose. So it doesn't seem like that really would fit with his mission. We have no evidence that he ever married. But as a human, he could have married, had children. These are activities of the human nature, and such a union would have resulted in ordinary human offspring, not hybrid offspring, partly divine, partly human. It would be completely human. Further, the participation of a sinful woman in producing such children would not would have resulted in children with a fallen human nature, in need of regeneration. Sounds a little weird to us. Jesus has children, and they have to get saved, or else they go to hell. Again, we're, we're speaking in the realm of speculation because it doesn't appear, there's, there's no evidence at all that he did get married and have children. But the question of whether he could have, I, 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 I can't find a theological reason to say that he couldn't have. But um, we said before that the sin nature comes from the Father, right? Or no. We said that the sin nature comes from the the, the conception. And so, you know, mom and dad both contribute. And if it's just, you know, and so so when when the when when two sinning people produce a uh, a child, that child is of necessity a sinning child. Um uh, and so there would there would not have been any sort of miracle to keep Jesus' wife's sin contribution at bay. So it's not through the man that sin comes, mm-hmm. but through the act of conception that a, that a, that a child, a new person, is produced, a sinner. See, I would think one argument. I mean, to even talk about it, it's sort of funny, but yeah, it's a little to speculative. have for. Jesus to have a son or daughter, and you can see what people do with Mary. Right. Imagine where it would have gone with. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why it just wouldn't have worked. But theologically, is there some reason why it couldn't have happened? 
I'm not, I'm not seeing one. So he had appetites, he had passions. In response to external stimuli, Christ was moved with compassion when he observed the harassment and helplessness of the crowds. He became angry and sorrowful at the same time in the face of unbelief. He cried when a friend died and when he observed the despair of the family. He experienced psychological agony when he contemplated the cross. Great, you know, sweat drops of blood. I mean, this is this is obviously psychological angst that he is going through as he anticipates, contemplates uh, what's coming next. So he 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 suffered psychologically. Now, since Jesus did not have all of the divine prerogatives available to him in his humanity, his human experience sometimes included unanticipated events. He learned things. He became disquieted about the future, and this resulted in spontaneous surges of feeling. Feelings that even featured physical and glandular responses, such as tears, sweat, trembling, and the like. At all points, Christ controlled and directed these passions perfectly. He didn't sin with his passions. Still, he had them in ways that God never could apart from the Incarnation. Now, as with the rest of the divine attributes, impassibility remains the property of the Son of God. You know, the Lagos, in terms of his deity, the omniscient Christ never knew surprise or other surges of feeling known only to learning beings. God's impassable because he's sovereign and because he's omniscient. But in his human experience, Jesus did experience these passions. As with his appetites, his passions were always chaste, always right, but they were real and true passions. I I want us to get a sense of how human Jesus was. He was just like us. He didn't have any sort of advantages that, you know, he he was just, didn't have any feelings, and so it was easy to sort of maneuver through life. No, he had the same feelings we have. He had, the, he had the same appetites we have. He has the same passions we have. And he also has affections, which are the ones that we cultivate. These are the higher uh, psychological forms. He cultivated appropriate affections. He was inclined towards good, and he developed in that inclination towards good, and beautiful and true. And he was averse to their uh, opposites. He regularly prayed and worshipped cultivating his religious affections. He exhibited self-sacrificing love, the giving of himself for the good of others. He shared his joy with others. He developed, which was developed in the crucible of obedience and suffering with his disciples. I want your joy to be complete. I'm going to share with you my joy. He apparently developed a close friendship with John. Yeah, it's, uh, as you as we work through the book of John, you know, first <laughs> John, one. this first John. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so apparently, apparently, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved. It's kind of a, kind of a, a an unusual way of putting. It. John rarely refers to himself as John. He he 
he speaks of this disciple whom Jesus loved, and apparently that's sort of a humble way of saying me, uh, but without actually naming himself. Uh, so apparently, if I can tell you, John was Jesus' best friend. So he was closer to John than he was with the other disciples. It wasn't as though he treated everyone absolutely equally because he's God. No, he he apparently yeah, apparently jived with uh, with uh, with John. They got along really well. They had common interests, and backgrounds, and they just <coughs> enjoyed being around each other. They were friends. Okay, so he developed this friendship with John. So he has all of these elements, these psychological elements of humanity. He also had the appearance of a human. Isaiah uh, predicts this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He's just an ordinary guy. The woman at the well recognizes Jesus as a Jew, probably from physical features. Even in his glorified body, Mary recognized that he was a human. He thought she thought he was the gardener, but at least recognizes that he was human. Also, limitations. He was weary, slept. He lacked strength. He looked for food. He suffered physically, died. All these limitations of humanity were his. And the conclusion here is that he actually got sick from time to time as well. It's not so he had some sort of a perfect body that was absolutely resilient and uh, and resistant to all disease. He had an ordinary body and probably got sick. Yeah, Maybe he got sick a little less often because he was more careful, but he would have gotten sick, same as the rest of us. And not only does he have the physical and psychological features, but also the immaterial feature. He knew in his spirit what his opponents were thinking. He was moved in his spirit. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, and I need somebody with me. You know, I mean, how how human can that be? My my soul is 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 sorrowful to the point of that. Please, please, guys, just stay with me. I I need your encouragement right now. Uh, what a statement! He dismissed his spirit from his body, so his he has a human immaterial. His spirit goes away, and his localized spirit descends into hell. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later on when we talk about his uh, his re- his uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. But for now, we're just going to uh, put that out there, that his spirit goes down, and uh, as his body is put in the grave, his spirit, his immaterial, goes somewhere else. And uh, there's some debate as to exactly where it goes. I'm, I'm inclined to think that it goes down into the netherworld, but that's a discussion for another day. Uh, for now, we just say it goes somewhere else. Let's put it that way. The only thing that's different about Jesus is that he didn't sin. Sin is not a necessary quality of humanity. It's not sinful to be a human. It's not intrinsically necessary for humans to sin. It's only humans in Adam who inherit a sin nature and share in his guilt. Hamartiology is coming, the doctrine of sin. It's uh, it's 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 in the same class at the seminary. Yeah, here. One question: <laughs> If if Adam was born without a sin nature, was he less inclined towards sin than us that are born with it? 
Uh, he, yeah, they, he was he was he was disinclined towards sin. He would have been natively bent towards what was good, so but for he was, him to sin the first time would have been harder for, for him to do than for us. Yes. Satan would have had a harder time tempting Adam than he would have us because there was nothing internal that interacted with that. Uh, so that temptation. Christ humanity is different. In that one aspect. In that one aspect. So he was he was tempted at all points, like as we are, except without sin. That that's that that's that's the exception. Uh, there is no sin nature. Although I think we're going to see as we talk about the uh, the temptation of Christ, this does not necessarily mean he has an advantage. Uh, because as we, as we've seen already, I mean, he was sitting there for forty days and hadn't eaten. For, for and that, that makes things tougher for him. Um, and then also, there's this. There's this. Uh, you know, Dr. McKeon used to talk about. Okay, there's there's two trees, a massive old oak tree that's 200 years old, and then a sapling side by side. There's a huge windstorm, and the sapling falls over. Which one felt the full weight of the wind? Both did. We don't really know whether that sapling felt the full weight of the wind because it fell over. The oak tree felt the full weight. We know that the oak tree felt the full weight of the. I guess we could say that you know the sapling fell the absolute weight of the, the wind. I suppose you could say that. But we know the oak tree felt the full weight of the of the wind. So who feels the greatest weight of temptation? The one who sins, or the one who does? That's the one who doesn't. So, so I, there's a sense in which we say, well, he's got an advantage because he doesn't have a sin nature. Yes, but he, he feels temptation much more acutely than we do because he doesn't sin. So I'm not sure it's necessarily a huge advantage here for him. Although there's a sense in which this may be the one advantage that Jesus has in his humanity. And again, then that... Um rejection of sin that was all done in his humanity so there's nothing in his divinity that that I don't know transcended through his humanity to allow that right I don't see him getting from his deity any sort of advantage except in our humanity if we could never not sin because we're born there Right. Yeah, we do have a sin nature. And in that sense, he does not have that internal bent towards sin that we do. I mean, we're born with an internal bent to sin. But like I say, it is an advantage, and it's not an advantage. Because we sin at times, and we don't even know it. True. I would say. True. Or not really recognize it. Last thing you said is it's just so difficult that. I don't know. Like the, to say that it was only his humanity that resisted resisted the temptation. So, what makes him better than Adam? Like, how was Adam not able to resist what Jesus was? Well, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the impeccability of Christ, which is which is an argument that's that's still still coming ahead of us. But 
and that's part of the question. Is there is there something in that now now we know because of the sovereignty of God it wasn't going to happen this way. Um, nonetheless, was was does does Jesus get help from his divinity to face temptation? And I'm inclined to say no because at that point he's not tempted at all points. It's not like we've got some sort of a a super resiliency that we can sort of draw on uh, to to uh, to prevent us from sinning, and I don't think Jesus did either. Just it's, it seems like there's a danger of like a vulnerability, exalting, exalting <laughs> Jesus the man, and somehow separating him from. Well, yeah, and you can't. He he was the person. The the person didn't sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we'll, we'll we'll talk about that when we talk about the impeccability of Christ. But I I don't see him getting any sort of help from his divinity to keep him from sinning. Uh, but I always wondered if Christ would have, other than Satan telling him to do something, if he would have taken rocks and made food for himself. Well, I think he understood that the purpose of his miraculous energies was not to fool around and, and make make food. I'm thinking he's God; he could see that he's right, and that's that's the cleverness of that temptation. Because he he's actually you know you you, you look at some of the things that Satan says, we'd say, what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah. What's wrong with making bread? What's wrong with Other than the, the whole world? You know bowing down to worship. He deserves it, right? But in order, the, the what he'd have to do in order to get that would just completely blow his, his mission out of the water. He's capitulating to what Satan. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's, he, he'd be saying, well, why, why don't you get the worship without going to the cross? <laughs> no, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, so, so it's a very clever set of temptations that uh, that Satan levies at him. And he sees through it. You know, that's an interesting thing when I listen to when people give testimonies. I know people who didn't get involved in stupid things like drugs and alcohol. They're they're almost when you ask them to, to give their testimony, they're almost ashamed that they don't. They says, "Well, my testimony is bad." You know, it's almost like they're still bearing a temptation that we've succumbed to and have suffered, but yet. You're saying the weight of that temptation is gone from us because we know it's stupid and we, we're not going to want to do that, but they're still bearing that temptation, but without giving into it. I suppose you could suppose you could make that parallel. I mean, there's, yeah, I, 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 I suppose that, that that's a that's a parallel thought. I don't know that all temptation would necessarily be the same, though. Right, either, right, right. So I might not struggle with. Alcohol, but I would struggle with. Yeah, I, me, I never paid. What I'm saying, they're being ashamed, almost well, like embarrassed. Okay, means that they are struggling with it still. Well, like, maybe. Possibly. I think probably it's more like I wish I had a I wish I had a cool story like <laughs> like like yeah. like yeah, some of you guys cool. did. Yeah. <laughs> but well, I mean, I I never struggled with alcohol, but just because you know for. 20 years of my life, I don't know that I ever saw any, you know. <laughs> Growing up in Pennsylvania, all the liquor was in the, in the state stores, you know. You couldn't even buy it in grocery stores. So it's not like I, there was, about the only thing I saw was the, uh, the taste great, less filling. Commercials? <laughs> 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 that wasn't all that tempt- tempting. Yeah. So. <laughs> so.
Yeah. So conclusion, Jesus is human in every respect. He had no advantages that others lack, shortcuts to intellectual development, repressed appetites, and so on and so forth. He is at all points like we are, except without the same nature. Okay, so next week we'll try and put it together in what we call the hypostatic union. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about the Chalcedonian.